This is Habwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. The U.S. is the world's largest economy, flanked by two enormous oceans with trade and security interests around the globe. The same was true in 1920, when Section 7 of the Merchant Marine Act, better known as the Jones Act, was presented as a way to ensure adequate domestic shipbuilding and merchant marine capacity to serve in times of war or national emergency. It did so by restricting all domestic shipping to vessels that were U.S. built, U.S. owned, U.S. flagged, and U.S. crewed. Now in 2023, policymakers have the benefit of 102 years of data to measure the benefits and cost of this law to determine its success. Has the law helped to cultivate a healthy, competitive, and growing American shipbuilding and domestic sea merchant capability? Beyond the Jones Act's effect on domestic shipping, does the law have unintended negative effects on inflation, supply chain disruption, pollution, and American competitiveness? Were policymakers to learn that the Jones Act failed in its intended mission, while also exacerbating many problems facing the American economy, would they look toward its reform to improve our financial and national security? My guest today is Colin Grabo, Research Fellow at the Herbert A. Stifel Center for Trade Policy at the Cato Institute. Mr. Grabo co-authored a book in 2020 entitled The Case Against the Jones Act, and has written extensively on how this 1920 law affects our modern economy. Mr. Grabo will explain how a law that set out to protect American national security and a vital seagoing industry and its workers has failed at its intended mission while also aggravating many of the most pernicious problems of our national economy. He will also share his views on policy alternatives that could help resuscitate our domestic shipping capabilities while also protecting our strategic national interests. When I return, I'll be joined by Cato Institute Research Fellow, Colin Grabo. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by Cato Institute Research Fellow, Colin Grabo. Welcome to Hubwonk, Colin. Joe, thanks for having me on the show. Well, we're glad to have you. This is your first visit to um, to Habwonk, and as such, we would like to give your uh, to give our listeners a little sense of your background. We're going to be talking about the Jones Act today. Uh, has to do with trade, has to do with shipping uh, overseas. Um, but I want to know a little bit about how you got interested in this topic. So, well, so first off, I uh, I started working at Cato in September of 2017, September 25th, actually. And a few days earlier, uh, Puerto Rico was hit by Hurricane Maria. And the Jones Act was in the news. And people were saying, we need to waive the Jones Act to make it easier to provide relief supplies to Puerto Rico. And in fact, one of the first uh, op-eds I wrote uh, as a Cato employee was arguing just for that for uh, getting rid of the Jones Act to help Puerto Rico. And I, I, so that was kind of my first introduction to the law. 
But then I started to really dig deeper into it. And the more I dug, the just the, the, the stranger the loss sounds, the more destructive its effects, more apparent uh, the, the effective, um, the, the destructive impact became to me. And it touches so many things. Uh, you know, it's transportation, which touches so many parts of our lives and helps shape our economy. And I just thought there was a real opportunity there to really dig into this law and try to educate people on why it's important, why it matters, and why reform or repeal of it is, is so important. Okay, so uh, we we know it's important, and we know you don't think it's a good idea. So let's let's start with a little bit of history. Um, you've been focused on the topic, um, uh, and at least by from your perspective, it's been unresolved uh, for now more than a hundred years. It's 1920 that it passed. If I've got my facts right, uh, tell us what is the Jones Act, and why was uh, why was it a good idea to somebody uh, in 1920. So, the, the, as you mentioned, the Jones Act was passed in 1920, but, uh, you know, let's not pretend that uh, prior to 1920, we had this total free market environment, and people could ship, you know, anything they wanted. So, the Jones Act, you know, first off, it's Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, which states that essentially to move uh, goods by water between any two points in the United States, you have to use a vessel that is flagged and registered in the United States, it's built in the United States, it's crewed by Americans, and it's owned by Americans. Now, like I said, this, these kinds of laws uh, go back to the country's founding, but the context is very much different than today. If you went back to the late 1700s, U.S. shipbuilders were some of the cheapest and most efficient in the world. Um, U.S. Uh, ship, ships, uh, shipping firms were some of the best in the world. So being forced to use American ships was really not that big of a deal. Um, and furthermore, there were national security implications, very clear there. Um, you could take these merchant ships and in time of war, put some cannon on them and turn them into a privateer. They could go hunt enemy shipping. And back then, our major uh, enemy or rival was the British with the Royal Navy. Um, and we had obviously fought a war against them. And we, had, we were a small, poor country, and we didn't have a big Navy. So this was a way of supplementing that Navy and ensuring there were lots of ships uh, in the event of hostilities. Well, time goes on, and that starts to change. Around the mid to late 1800s, American shipbuilding goes from being some of the uh, world's best to increasingly less efficient, less competitive. Uh, this is a uh, large part because we switched from wooden ships. Wood, this is the age of wooden sail gave way to the uh, age of iron uh, and steam powered ships. Uh, Americans uh, protected American shipbuilding did not keep pace uh, with the rest of the world. Uh, so American ships uh, uh, to build them and use them becomes much more expensive than foreign ships. In fact, by the late 1800s, we had a court case where there was someone that wanted to ship uh, kegs of nails from the East Coast to California by way of Belgium because they would send it to Belgium on a foreign ship and use another foreign ship from Belgium to California. And evidently, they thought this was cheaper than using an American ship just to go directly to California, which I think speaks to the inefficiency. Well, Congress changed that to eliminate that you know, loophole or workaround, but there was another one. And this was uh, people in Alaska. They could ship goods to and from the lower 48 going through Canadian ports. What you happen is you couldn't take a foreign ship to a foreign port and then to an American port. What you could do is take something over land to a foreign port. So people would transport goods up to Vancouver by, by rail and then from there to Alaska. Uh, well, 
uh, Seattle shipping companies did not like this. They didn't want foreign uh, competition. They thought this is our this is our trade. This should be for us. And who are they represented by in Congress? Well, Senator Wesley Jones of Washington State. Uh, the end of World War I, World War One comes along. The U.S. built a big fleet because um, we, we didn't have enough ships to transport all the uh, equipment and soldiers over to France. And the U.S. had to get rid of those ships. So they decided to auction off those ships, get rid of them. Also, just kind of revisit maritime policy in general. And in the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, Senator Wesley Jones inserts Section 27, which uh, changed the law to um, to remove the ability to ship goods through through Canada, uh, basically as a stop uh, to to uh, shipping interests there in Seattle. So shipping interests, although I, I do think, uh, uh, again, any historian of a Amer- U.S. historian um, will say we don't like standing armies. We don't like standing navies. We'd like to be able to turn a flip a switch and have uh, the ability to. Uh, I guess, uh, commandeer uh, uh, domestic ships. That seemed like a a reasonable uh, pretextual justification for this law. But for our listeners, just so we know, this 1920 law um, still is more or less intact. To this day, uh, 2023, uh, the law still mandates that uh, if I'm going from Texas, well, Alaska to to, uh, California or Texas to Boston, I still have, if I want to do that via sea, the ship has to be built in the U.S., crewed in the U.S., and owned by a U.S., uh, interest is that still the case? That is still the case. Yes, this law is uh, basically it's more or less untouched uh, since nineteen twenty. So, for our listeners who are, you know, many of our listeners are uh, uh, put America first. We know we've heard these kinds of uh, sentiments uh, in in other industries. Uh, we this mandate means we're going to have perhaps uh, intuitively more shipbuilding than we would otherwise have, more um, domestic uh, seamen than we would otherwise have. Uh, why is this not a good idea? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, on its face, what could be the Jones Act is just very pro-American, using American-built ships, employing Americans. What could be wrong with that? What kind of monster would want to take on this law? Exactly. Um, well, the, the problem is that these ships are I- incredibly expensive to build and crew. A U.S.-built ship today, uh, a tanker ship is roughly four times as much as a foreign-built ship. So we're talking, you know. $40 million overseas versus $175 million. Uh, I've heard estimates up to $200 million in the U.S. A container ship, uh, the most recent order for a Jones Act container ship, it costs $330 million per ship over in Asia. That's closer to a $60 million ship. So these costs get uh, passed along. Operating these ships uh, costs about three times more than, than foreign ships. So the ships are very expensive to operate, which means uh, that people don't really use them because they, they're, they're so expensive. Um, over time, so over the, since 1980, the number of Jones Act ships has declined from 257 to it's a little, it's around 90 today, I think maybe 92, something like that today. Um, we've taken what should be a very attractive uh, method of transportation and turn it into a very unattractive method of transportation. And for a country as big as the United States, that's a big deal. Transportation is efficient. Transportation is a way of overcoming uh, distance and allowing Americans to trade with one another. Uh, we have a great pipeline system. We have efficient rail. Um, we have trucking, but we don't have efficient shipping in this country, which basically means that when it comes time to buy things, uh, someone in New England 
uh, they say, well, I need, for example, diesel fuel. And I can buy that from Texas, theoretically, with a Jones Act ship, or I can buy it from, say, a refinery in the Netherlands over in Northwest Europe and bring that over. And oftentimes, it actually makes more sense to buy the, the European fuel. Uh, notoriously, back in 2018, the Boston imported Russian uh, liquefied natural gas, you know, natural gas originated in Russia. Um, because it doesn't make sense to buy the American product once you factor in the cost of transportation. So basically, the Jones Act uh, disincentivizes domestic supply chains and, and kind of gums up the works and makes it more difficult for Americans to buy and trade with each other. So the stated interest was to preserve American shipbuilding capabilities, ship owning, uh, to have a, a, an American flag flying on above those ships. And the result is it's exactly the opposite, which is if I'm going to move something from one domestic port to another, I can either use a very expensive U.S. ship or I can use a much less expensive foreign ship. So ironically, what was intended to preserve an industry has had the opposite effect, which is to say most, uh, let's say, profit-driven um, shippers choose a foreign ship and are naturally a foreign port uh, to get it from. Do I have that about right? Yeah, that, 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 that's correct. You know, essentially, you have the choice of, well, I can buy the American product, or I can use a foreign ship provided that it comes from a foreign port. So I can import the product, or I can buy American. And after I factor in the cost of transportation, um, you know, I'm going to buy the foreign product. Uh, and and you, know, you have some extreme examples, like, you know, I mentioned liquefied natural gas, where buying the American product is not even an option, because the ships to transport it don't exist. Uh, to transport LNG, you need a specialized LNG tanker, and there are none in the Jones Act fleet. So New England has no choice but to buy imported uh, LNG to meet its its natural gas needs. Um, and then, you know, as you mentioned, we have seen the fleet uh, decline. And this is because the Jones Act, it tries to do two things. It tries to subsidize the U.S. merit and the shipping fleet. But then it also tries to subsidize the shipbuilding industry by forcing in the operators of ships to buy from American shipyards that cost, you know, four to five times more. Well, when ships cost, you know, uh, $300 million instead of $60 million, you're going to get fewer ships. And then to top it all off, we don't even have that, you know, I talked about the decline in the fleet. We don't even have that much shipbuilding. Last year in the entire United States, there are only two ships built, one for the ocean and one on the Great Lakes. But one of the Great Lakes, by the way, that was the first ship built since, I think, 1983, 84, something like that. Um, in 2021, there are actually zero Jones Act ships delivered. The year before that, there was one. Over the last, I think, since the year 2000, on average year, there are about three Jones Act ships built. For context, you know, a single shipyard in South Korea might build 60, 70 or more ships per year. So um, a, a topic on, on listeners' minds when they think about um, buying goods and services, at least in the last year, is uh, inflation. And we talk about uh, everything becoming more expensive, fuel being the most uh, conspicuous uh, item that's clearly much more expensive than it was a year ago. Um, I read in one of your papers uh, that it's true that um, though we have, we're, we're more or less self-sufficient when it comes to natural gas, we're actually loading up these natural um, liquefied natural gas tankers and sending them abroad and buying our liquefied natural gas from, as you say, Russia. Um, what does that have? What effect does that have on the price? Ultimately, if it's you know six of one, half dozen of another, we don't care. But what does that do to the ultimate price for the consumer at the pump or when he pays his uh, his gas bill at the end of the month? Yeah, it's hard to put an exact figure on it. If you want to just talk about, you, know, you mentioned drivers at the pump, um, 
you know, so we're talking motor gasoline and in, in, in that example. Uh, there was an analysis last year, I think, from JP Morgan that said drivers on the East Coast would see the price of gas go down by 10 cents a gallon if the Jones Act was uh, waived or repealed and not applied to the transportation of, of gasoline. Um, I saw another estimate from I think Bloomberg Intelligence, which had something similar um, similar impact is in the billions of dollars just for motor gasoline. Um, and then if you look at, you know, I think Puerto Rico is an interesting example because right next to Puerto Rico is the Dominican Republic. And if you want to ship something to the Dominican Republic, no Jones Act, you want to send it to Puerto Rico, there's Jones Act. Well, Dominican Republic buys the vast majority of its natural gas from the United States. Puerto Rico buys basically none because, again, it can't. So it has to buy it from as far away. You know, a lot of it comes from Trinidad and Tobago, but also last year came from Oman, came from Nigeria, um, Spain. So these are longer distances. And I think as evidenced by the fact that Dominican Republic buys its gas from the U.S., that's the best deal to be had. And that's kind of instructive. Um, so we know there's some kind of savings there. Um Presumably, that dynamic also applies to New England. Um, so we can we know there's a cost. Uh, you know, putting an exact number on this is it, difficult. Uh, also depends. Do you buy from a spot market? Do you assign a sign a long term contract? Um, so so a lot of different factors here. But we know there is a cost. So I don't want to pin you down then on that cost. But let's just talk about another aspect of, of fuel that uh, one doesn't need to be a. a uh, read too much about the news is there's shocks to a uh, global supply that is uh, Russia and their supply lines or the war in Ukraine. Uh, you know, if we have a very cold winter, both here in the US and in Europe, uh, the lights uh, start going dark and uh, our homes start getting cold. What kind of vulnerability, as you say, if, if we can only import natural gas to Boston from somewhere else that's not uh, US based, uh, what kind of vulnerability does that introduce into our, our supply lines? Well, I, I know that um, back in uh, the late 80s, I think there was an example of there was a very cold winter and New England was screaming for uh, home heating fuel. And there happened to be a foreign ship heading out of Texas on its way, I think, to Italy. And New England said, let's wave the Jones Act so we can divert that ship up here. Um, and they never got that waiver and ended up going uh, to Italy. But these are the kinds of things that happen. There's a ship with something you need and you can't get it. Um, you know, in terms of LNG, uh, we are the world's leading exporter of it. You know, we ship it as far away as China. We can't send it to New England. So you're kind of, um, you're, you're taking supplies off the table. It's fewer options that you have at your disposal, which I think introduces uh, vulnerabilities. In times of crisis, uh, especially, you want maximum options, maximum flexibility uh, on the table to, to 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 meet your needs, and the Jones Act means uh, less of that. So the you know the over the ten thousand feet view of the Jones Act is to to preserve and perhaps cultivate a U.S. shipbuilding industry. Presumably, we can't merely just supply uh, ships to the U.S. We would be a global supplier. You had mentioned earlier at the top of the show that we used to be a global supplier of ships, so best in the world. Um, do we, this, this uh, industry we're, we're trying to cultivate, do we sell any U.S. made ships to other countries that are looking for, you know, wonderfully U.S. made uh, uh, products? No, in terms of, uh, you know, merchant cargo ships, uh, zero. No. In fact, um, so while these ships have to be U.S. built, in many ways, these ships are actually already foreign. Uh, kind of one of the dirty secrets of Jones Act ships is that uh, while the steel 
the, the whole of the ship is American. All the components that go into the ship to make it work, like the propeller, the engine, uh, the anchors, um, all, all these other, you know, the boilers, uh, these are, uh, they're, they're foreign, they're imported. Uh, to give you one example, uh, the Philly shipyard, I think about 15 years ago, where they were building a series of tankers and each ship uh, required 500 containers worth of uh, parts coming from South Korea, as well as uh, 25, what they call bulk shipments, things, you know, good bulky items like the engine or the propeller, things like that. And the designs are foreign too. So they buy foreign designs, they use foreign components to, to put them all together. So one of the sad things about the Jones Act is some people may think, well, in time of war, the Jones Act means that we can build our own ships and we don't have to rely on foreigners. But the reality is we're absolutely dependent on foreigners uh, for our ships. So we don't we don't export ships. We build a very small number of them. And the ones that we do build are highly dependent on, on foreign expertise and, and components. I can anticipate our listeners who, you know, this might be like fingernails on the chalkboard because it sounds like we're casting aspersions on U.S. manufacturing that we we can't make things anymore. Uh, and we're not saying that because I'm, I'm thinking about other industries uh, that are similar to the shipbuilding. You know, what springs to mind, of course, when we talk about transportation is is uh, is airplanes, right? Airlines. Boeing is a powerhouse, right? That both, of course, supplies domestic uh, airlines, but of course, uh, you know, you can fly a 747 at um, uh, British Airways or Lufthansa or, you know, Alitalia. The whole world uses our airplanes. Why is it different? Is it merely that the airlines don't have a Jones Act? Or uh, Share with our listeners, why is it that you think um, we aren't more competitive in ships, whereas we seem to be very competitive in, in other large industries? Yeah, I think this is, a, this is a very logical question. A lot of people think, well, wait a minute, you know, Americans are pretty competitive people. We do a lot of a lot of things really well. You mentioned airplanes, you know, uh, SpaceX. We can build rockets that go up in the in the atmosphere and come back and land themselves. We do incredible things. Why, why not ships? Uh, there's a, a few different uh, factors here. I think number one is, well, you have the Jones Act, which says you don't have to compete. If you don't have to compete, you're almost by definition going to be uncompetitive. Uh, there's no one to keep you on your toes and push you. Uh, also, I think the Jones Act has actually harmed American shipbuilding um, by disincentivizing them from finding a niche. I, to be really successful at something, you need to compete on the international market, build at scale, and, and, and find your little niche. If you look around the world, for example, um, I think Finland, they are world-class at building icebreakers. Uh, you look at the Dutch, they're very good at dredging vessels. You look at uh, South Korea, they're renowned for their LNG tankers. I go down a list. People tend to develop kind of specialties. Well, American shipbuilders don't really have a specialty. They're kind of a jack-of-trade master of none. Um, because they build for a captive U.S. market, which means, you know, one year they get an order for this kind of vessel, the next year that kind of vessel. They're kind of all over the place uh, in what they build. So they don't develop these specialties. They don't build for the international markets. So they don't get scale. I mean, scale is just a huge factor here. If you're a shipbuilder and you're building, you know, 60 ships a year, well, you're ordering 60 engines per year. And if you're a Jones Act shipyard, you maybe build one or two ships a year. And you go and negotiate a price for these components. Well, the guy ordering 60 ships, he's going to get a much different price than the guy that orders one ship, or you order you know, vast amounts of steel. So there's real economies of scale here that Americans miss out on because they, they build for a very uh, small market. So, you know, and this to me is um, 
people that think, well, we, we Americans, uh, we need to be protected. Uh, foreigners, you know, we, we can't compete against them. I think, wow, you really have a low opinion of Americans. I think that in many industries, we've shown an ability to compete. And what with the Jones Act has shown is that this is absolutely the wrong way of going about trying to encourage an industry. So another example of where protectionism has the unintended effect of making yeah, U.S. companies less competitive. Um, yes. Let, let's shift gears a little bit and say, okay, look, we're a uh, both a economic superpower, but a, a, a military superpower. We're, we've got uh, oceans on both sides um, and uh, more or less keep the, uh, the oceans free for trade. Uh, where are all those ships built that we um, that we use to protect our shores and other other countries' shores? Are we are we jeopardizing our ability to make warships by, in a sense, uh, perhaps advocating for um, more competitive uh, domestic fleet? Yeah. So, uh, if I were to advocate for the Jones Act, I would tell you that well, we need the Jones Act because we need to give business to these shipyards to ensure that they can also. Uh, produce, you know, warships for our Navy and meet our national security needs. That, that's at least the argument you will hear. But when you subject it to some kind of scrutiny, you'll find it, it doesn't hold as much water as you might think. For example, uh, if you're in New England, there's Bath Ironworks um, uh, up in Maine. Uh, they produce uh, frigates, you know, for the Navy. They haven't built a Jones Act ship, a commercial cargo ship since, I think, 1984, uh, if you go down the coast to Newport News uh, shipyard that builds aircraft carriers, uh, this shipyard has not built a commercial ship since the late 1990s. Uh, if you go over to Huntington Ingalls in Pascagoula, Mississippi, uh, again, they build, you know, I think, uh, frigates, destroyers, cruisers. Uh, they have not built a commercial ship or even tried to since the late 90s. Um so, you know, and then electric boat, uh, they, you know, build submarines, they don't build merchant vessels. So there's a limited amount, there's some overlap, for example, the uh, NASCO shipyard in San Diego, they, um, they build uh, non um, combat ship, they build, you know, support ships, oilers, um, uh, uh, fleet support ships. And they build an occasional Jones Act ship. You know, they delivered one, I think, in 2020 was the last Jones Act ship. But their bread and butter is building for the Navy. That's, you know, say 80% of their work. Uh, in fact, there was a government uh, report released uh, in 2021 that showed in terms of industry revenue for shipbuilding, the U.S. shipbuilding industry, almost 80% of revenue in 2019 was government contracts to build for the Navy. So that's what's really driving uh, a lot of the big U.S. shipyards, and then the one the shipyards that do build Jones Act ships, like the lo- the last Jones Act ship was delivered by a shipyard in Texas. They built nothing for the Navy. They are exclusively focused on commercial uh, work. Also, Philly Shipyard they built roughly half of all Jones Act ships. Um, they don't they they uh, do not build warships or or ships for the Navy or Coast Guard. So there is some overlap in some places, but it's quite limited. So what you're saying is almost, but not entirely, but almost a, a complete bifurcation of, of production, right? You've got that, some- That's uh, what we've seen. Yeah, the skill set to build, you know, say an aircraft carrier or, uh, uh, you know, a destroyer or something like that is quite different from building a merchant ship. And you don't just switch easily back and forth between the two of them. In fact, you know, I mentioned Newport News last building some uh, commercial ships in the 90s. This was back when we had defense cuts after the Cold War had ended. And they thought, okay, well, we know how to build ships. We'll get in the commercial game. 
and they got a contract to build uh, several tankers, and they ended up losing, I think, a few hundred million dollars on it. They were not good at it. Uh, so th- these are you know, kind of fairly distinct, um, uh, you know, ship types. Which ties back to your idea that uh, uh, the best business in this industry is to be highly specialized, high volume. Uh, you 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 gain an expertise in a particular type of ship. But what you're saying with it, with our listeners who might be concerned that. Uh, let's say any disruption to the Jones Act, any uh, change to it would have a detrimental effect on our ability to make warships. It's really very little overlap. It would have almost no impact on those those uh, shipyards making warships and, and logistical um, uh, uh, ships for the Navy and the Coast Guard. Yes, yes. And I, I just lastly point out, um, you know, we, we can even rethink some of that as well with regard to what our Coast Guard Navy buys. For example, uh, the Coast Guard is currently building, uh, or they signed a contract to build an icebreaker uh, called a polar security cutter, because I think there's only like two icebreakers in the Coast Guard fleet, uh, and they want more. So they asked, you know, U.S. shipyard to build it, which has zero expertise in building these ships. Uh, so far, they're already suffering from uh, cost overruns and delays. And, you know, in Finland, which uh, is trying to join NATO, these are potential NATO allies of ours, you know, they say we could build it like a third of the cost and in just, uh, you know, two or three years. So these are all, you know, uh, building in the United States, that's great. There are advantages to it, but there are also disadvantages. We need to weigh these things pretty carefully. So we've uh, spent our time uh, talking about all the, the problems with the Jones Act. and But of course, it still exists, as I mentioned at the top of the show, for more than 100 years. So I'll give you an open-ended question. Uh, we clearly seem to think uh, that it might not be a good idea, but uh, to be fair to the other side, who supports this law in 2023, given all the uh, observations you've made and certainly others uh, can also make? So the the Jones Act support um, has three basic components. It's going to be U.S. shipyards, uh, Shipbuilders Council of America, for example. That's not a huge surprise. This, after all, is a law that says we have to buy from them. We cannot buy from foreign uh, competitors. So they they very much uh, like the law and support it. And then you have uh, vessel operators. These are the guys that, that run the ships, the shipping companies. They certainly don't want any foreign uh, competition to come in and try to take business from them, you know, running supplies to Hawaii or Puerto Rico or Alaska um, or or tankers, you know, along the East Coast. And then you also have uh, seafarer mariners, uh, um, mariner unions, uh, folks like Seafarers International Union, the Masters, Mates and Pilots or the Marine Engineers Beneficial Association, Organized Labor. Uh, because they crew these ships, and of course they don't want uh, to compete uh, with, with with foreign labor. So those are the three main elements of what you could refer to as the Jones Act lobby that are constantly in Washington. Uh, there, a lot of them have offices here, making the case on a, a almost daily basis for the law and maintaining it, while your average American uh, probably has no idea the law even exists. And so the forces that work here are pretty asymmetrical, and our, our policy reflects that. So we often talk about the classic case of concentrated benefits and diffuse uh, costs, as you say. Uh, Somebody pays for the more expensive ship, somebody pays for the more expensive crew, somebody pays for the more expensive operation, and that's consumers, anybody who pumps gas or buys products, we pay those uh, uh, additional costs. so if if I may ask, if you, you know, there, there's a nuance in, in reading your paper uh, that suggests there may be some middle way. Um, we, we touched on it um, briefly. Um, the Jones Act mandates it has to be both 
US-built and US-operated. But you said even the US operators are frustrated in that they'd rather buy a cheaper foreign chip uh, and have a better bottom line. Did I misread that? Or might we be able to uh, at least take a, a small measure and at least relieve the obligation to buy a US ship, buy a foreign ship and mandate that it has to have a US crew and a US ownership, you know, perhaps you know, for strategic reasons? Well, um, certainly, I, I think if you know, if we often talk about the Jones Act in binary fashion, do we keep it? Do we get rid of it? Um, but you know, as you've kind of hinted at, uh, there are many other options for for changes and reform. Um, and one obvious candidate would be revisiting the U.S. built requirement and allowing Americans to buy you know vessels from anyone they want, or you could even just limit it, say, to NATO allies or allies in Japan and South Korea. Um, but w- one of the and many people may think that, well, on the one hand, the U.S. vessel operators, they they like the protection of the Jones Act against foreign competitors, but they must really hate uh, the U.S. built requirement because they have to pay an arm and a leg for new ships. But one of the perverse consequences of the Jones Act is, in fact, these vessel operators very much support that. Now, why would they do that? Well, it's because... These guys, as I just said, they, they paid you know, very uh, large amounts for, for these new ships. And the last thing they want is someone to say, oh, great, there's no U.S. built requirement. I'm going to go buy some cheap ships from you know, uh, Japan or South Korea, and I'm going to drive the existing guys out of business because I'm going to be able to mu- offer much lower you know, rates. Um, so unfortunately, even the people that, that pay these extreme prices for new ships, they actually support that because it helps fend off uh, competitors. Um, if, you, if the way to get in the shipping game is you have to buy you know, a ship that costs hundreds of millions of dollars, that's a great you know, kind of moat around your industry to keep out p- potential entry. Uh, you know, in contrast, we have the U.S. airline industry where you can lease some 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 jets and kind of you know hire some crew and you're more or less in business. You can't really do that in Jones Act world. But to your point, this would actually be, I think, an excellent opportunity for reform. And it's one that's not even it's I I can't consider it very radical because all it would do is bring the Jones Act in line with all of our other transportation sectors. We can use Airbus, you know, foreign-built airplanes. We can use foreign-built trucks, foreign-built rail uh, rail stock in this country. And I think those industries are all better off for it. Um, so this would be absolutely an obvious reform. And I'll just throw another one out there while we're at it, which is let's say if you want to ship something from one part of the United States to another, and there's no American ship available, then you can use a foreign ship. Uh, you know, LNG being the classic example, uh, we don't have any of those tankers in our fleet. Let's see, let's let Americans use foreign ones. And in, in in those examples, no loss to U.S. maritime ministry, and it's a gain uh, to to American businesses. So we have a carve out then for uh, particular industries where there is no domestic uh, equivalent or substitute. Um, I don't want to miss uh, the the concept, though. Um, I think I, I, I breezed right over it. There may be some people who say, "Look, we've got all these ships out there, be they American or um, or foreign uh, made. Uh, what about the ability to maintain all these ships? If we can't, if we don't build them, uh, would we also not be able to maintain? In other words, would would a um, an old U.S. ship um, not be able to, let's say, in a time of conflict, or you know, we ha- we're projecting force or or mm-hmm. logistical support. Where where would we get our, our ships as serviced if if not in these U.S. Jones Act uh, ports? Well, one of the interesting things about the Jones Act is while it does mandate that you have to use a U.S. built ship, it doesn't say anything about where you have to maintain 
repair it. And what U.S. law says is actually you can repair it wherever you want, but you have to pay a 50% tax on those foreign repairs with a few exemptions for countries that we've signed free trade agreements with, like Canada and Singapore. And what happens is, in fact, uh, Jones Act ship operators, uh, particularly those that serve uh, Alaska and Hawaii out there in the Pacific, they send their ships to China, to state-owned shipyards in China to get uh, repaired. And sometimes the work is actually pretty extensive that they they they, they get done. Um, there are two Jones Act ships I'm aware of that uh, basically were overhauled, uh, nearly completely rebuilt in Chinese uh, shipyards. So, and what's really perverse here is that because we have the Jones Act, which makes it very expensive to buy new ships, people tend to hold on for ships a lot longer than what you find internationally. Internationally, ships tend to last about, say, 20 to 25 years, whereas Jones Act ships tend to be used at least until age 40, their early 40s. Um, Older ships, yeah, you can use them, but they need more maintenance. So by requiring that we have U.S. built ships that are more expensive, we encourage them to last to to be in service longer, which means more maintenance, which means more work for Chinese shipyards. Um, Again, this is one of the the perverse things. So, uh, you know, the ability to repair ships uh, doesn't dovetail that that overlap that much with the Jones Act, because under current law, you don't have to maintain them in U.S. shipyards. So I've tried to come up with all the reasonable defenses of the Jones Act. Uh, we even talked to some sort of touching around the edges. I always like to, we're running out of time here. Um, I always like to give my guests the ability to be king for a day. I think we've already talked about some of the tweaks you might make to the Jones Act, but if you were king for the day, um, I guess I'll, I'll ask it directly. Would you just simply repeal the Jones Act? Will we all be better without this uh, 102-year-old law um, flat out? I, I think we would, but, uh, you know, I do... Uh, Jones Act supporters raise uh, national security concerns. And in my mind, these concerns are, are, are fairly they're without merit. If you look at the record of the Jones Act versus uh, what it's accomplished, I think the law isn't working. But I do take very seriously the need to have uh, a fleet of ships to transport uh, supplies and equipment for the U.S. military. So in my perfect world, I would pair Jones Act repeal uh, with targeted subsidies to ensure that uh, the U.S. military does have uh, the, uh, the ability to uh, ship goods uh, where, where they need. Um, and this isn't this isn't pie in the sky thinking. This is actually nothing new. This is nothing particularly creative. In fact, right now, we already have a program called the Maritime Security Program, which gives a, a $5.3 million subsidy to 60 ships. Now, these are not Jones Act ships. These are U.S. flagged foreign-built ships, so they cannot transport goods in the United States. They can only operate internationally, you know, carrying goods from the U.S. to foreign countries and vice versa. I would just go to the U.S., uh, to the Department of Defense and say, guys, how many ships do you need? Because you should absolutely have what is required to do your job. Um, so I would, that's what I would do. I would repeal the Jones Act, and I take very seriously uh, U.S. national security needs, and I think we should have the um, the the systems uh, and the programs in place to meet those needs because the Jones Act is not meeting those needs uh, today. Uh, to be clear for our listeners, what you're talking about is where the U.S. government would pay, let's say, a foreign ship a, 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 um, an amount of money every year to say, look, when we need you, uh, be it war or you know catastrophe, uh, we can, uh, uh, I don't guess, impress, I don't know what the right word would be, you into our service uh, whenever we want to. Is that about 
how that would work? So the, the, the maritime security program I described, these are actually U.S. ships. And we could just expand that and say, we'll give you a subsidy. And furthermore, you have to put your ship under the American flag. Um, so it's under our control, more or less. And yes, and then in exchange for that subsidy, in return, what it gets us is the ability to use your ship. We can call upon you. Uh, in, in time of uh, national emergency or conflict or something uh, to use those ships. So they're there when we need them. All right. Well, we're getting closer to the end of our show. Our, I think our listeners are reasonably fired up. I think we persuaded them that the Jones Act may be uh, not such a good idea. I want to both, um, uh, I want uh, you to uh, tell us where we can read more about your work on the Jones Act. But before that, what would our listeners, be they just engaged voters or um, state and uh, federal elected officials, what would um, we do to put this on the radar and get it off uh, the legal books, uh, get this law repealed uh, once and for all um, and, and not have another 102 years uh, dealing with it? Well, I just say you can't get something if you don't ask for it. And uh, so I would absolutely reach out to your elected members uh, of Congress and start there and say this is a federal law. It's a federal law. It's not working. And I think it's high time that either you know we repeal it or make some significant changes to it. Uh, it's not working for our national security. It's not working for our economy. Um, and I also think that even uh, state legislatures and governors, they can uh, – at least send a signal to Washington and say, hey, guys, you in Washington, this is something we care about. This is something that's hurting us. So uh, by all means, I, I would encourage people to reach out to elected officials at all levels and let them know how you feel about this. Well, it's a huge topic with lots of implications. Where can our listeners read more about your work on the Jones Act and, and perhaps uh, uh, better develop their own opinion uh, on whether this is a good idea or not? Uh, I would encourage uh, readers to look for uh, Cato Institute's work at cato.org slash Jones Act. It's pretty easy to remember. Uh, you could, if those of you that are active on Twitter and want to follow me where I, I have present a lot of material about this, uh, uh, my handle is at cpgrabo, C-P-G-R-A-B-O-W. Um, I think those are both uh, excellent resources to start learning more about this law. Wonderful. Well, there's, they'll start their journey and, uh, and understand it a, a better for our introduction here. So thank you very much for being on Hubwonk today, Colin. You've been a great resource for our listeners. Well, Joe, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would help make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions or comments for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.